in your Bibles, open them up if you've got them, to Mark chapter 9. Did that hymn take anybody back at all? Anybody sang that hymn growing up? Gosh, I love that hymn. The modern era has songs that provoke emotion. The older era has songs that provoke thought. Both are good. Okay. Mark chapter 9. We're going to read with verse 48, or excuse me, verse 38, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. But we thank you that from the lips of Jesus, we are given direction. We are given warning. We're given hope. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help me to communicate in a way that is helpful, that is warning, that brings hope. Help me to say what needs to be said, Lord. And I ask that we would all have ears to hear by the power of your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this morning the sermon is, ultimately, we're going to talk a little bit about hell. Uh, So I warned you last week, and that's where we're at. As we go through the book of Mark, that's what we encounter. We encounter Jesus talking about hell. I will tell you that there is nobody else in the Bible who talks more about hell than Jesus. Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. So I want that to be in your mind because all my life I have been instructed either implicitly or directly that we don't want None of that hellfire and brimstone stuff. Does anybody know what I mean? Now, now some of us grew up with hellfire and brimstone, uh, or 
what we would call hellfire and brimstone. It may have just been some guy yelling at you. Uh, that is not the same as genuine biblical warning and teaching on hell. You wouldn't want a doctor every time you saw him to come in and just scream in your face how sick and gross you are. But you would want a doctor that would tell you, hey Steve, we found a tumor, but we can fix it. Right? You wouldn't want the doctor to say, hey, live your best life now, Steve. Everything's great. There is a tumor, but I'm not going to tell you. That is not what you would want. You would want the doctor to tell you, there is a cancerous tumor, and it will kill you, but good news, I've got a knife, and I can cut it out, and it will be gone. That's what we need doctors for. You don't want a mechanic to tell you, your brakes are fine, and three minutes later you crash out here in the intersection. You want accurate diagnosis, correct? That's what we're going to get from the Scripture today, is an accurate diagnosis of reality. It is not hellfire and brimstone to tell the truth if the truth is there's hellfire and brimstone out there. Everybody got it? Okay. Now, let's, let's back up. We're going verse by verse. And the first couple verses that we looked at were uh, verse 38 uh, through verse 40, which is really a continuation. It just kind of flows in the way this whole passage worked, where Jesus, uh, last week we talked about being a servant, and he takes this little child and puts him in the midst of them. And, and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And we talked about how Jesus was not trying to be cute by bringing in a little kid because little kids are cute because they are. In the first century, they didn't look at it that way. In the first century, a little child was not really that valuable. They were more, it, they didn't even know if the kid was going to live past the age of five. Until they got to the working age and being able to, well, okay, we, we can relax with this kid. We think he's going to make it. They didn't really, they didn't look at child rearing the same way we do because the mortality rates were so high. So Jesus takes the most insignificant of a person in their culture, which is a child, and says, this is how you got to receive me. You, you can't just have a hierarchy uh, in, in your heart and your mind. You've got to treat others uh with a servant-like heart, and you've got to receive me as you would receive uh, this child. And then he goes right in uh, to verse 38, and John interrupts. That's where we started today. Hey, teacher, we saw some guy. He's casting out demons in your name, and we have no idea who he is. You hear the attitude of John in those verses. We tried to stop him, told him to quit. Because he's not following us. Jesus says, don't stop him. Anybody doing a mighty work in my name will not soon be able afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus is, is saying here, pretty simple, don't criticize those who are also working for the sake of the gospel. I was, I was reading through some quotes. Uh, John Wesley tells this story where uh, he asked this question at the, at the gates of heaven in the classical setting where St. Peter's at the gate, even though he's not going to be there. It's just for the sake of the joke. Uh, so St. Peter's at the gate, and uh, people are asking, are there any Presbyterians in there? 
Yes, there are. Are there any Methodists in there? Yes, there are. Baptist? Yes. Anybody from Celebration Church? One or two. Yes, there's a couple people in there. And when he gets through the gate, John Wesley says, where are the Baptists? And they say, there aren't any. Where's the Presbyterians? We don't have any of those. Where's, where's the kids from, and the people from Celebration Church? None of them are here either. Well, who's here? The only people that are here are Christians. Because when we get to heaven, we're not going to say, oh, you were one of them. That is not what we're going to do. We are all one of us. In fact, the phrase, the Holy Catholic Church, not Catholic with a capital uh, C of, of a denominational group, but Catholic meaning universal, anybody who belongs to Christ belongs to Christ. You may disagree with them, and they may not be perfect, but Jesus is telling us here, if they're on our side, don't try to kick them out of the kingdom. Don't try to kick them out. Okay, that's in essence what he's saying. Now, let's be very, very careful, though, because Jesus is not saying anything goes. Okay? Jesus is not saying that. So false teachers in Matthew 12, 30, uh, they are exempted. If people are teaching just blatantly false doctrine, okay, we that does need to be confronted lovingly. But there's a difference between that and saying, well, you don't belong to the exact same group the exact same way that I do. So one of my favorite friendships in church history is George Whitfield and John Wesley. George Whitfield, ardent five-point Calvinist. John Wesley, ardent not five-point Calvinist. If you read some of their letters to each other, you would assume that if they saw each other, they would fist fight. Their letters are rough. We do not talk to each other this way because we're a bunch of pansies in, in our current culture. They, they talk to each other in disagreement in a way that looks like they're ready to come to blows. However, John Wesley preceded George Whitfield in death. They were really, really close friends, and they preached the gospel together all over the place. They were really close friends, and somebody, knowing of the dispute they had with one another, um, asked George Whitfield if he expected to see John Wesley in heaven. And George Whitfield said, absolutely not. And they're like, yes, we're going to get some salacious material here. You got a good quote. This is going to be, this is going to be good. He's going to dig him after he's gone and in the grave. And then George Whitfield follows it up and says, John Wesley will be so close to the throne, I won't even be able to get close to where he is. That is the kind of attitude we're supposed to have in the face of having disagreements. However, they certainly disagreed. And they disagreed in a way that they used the Bible as the standard. Not the emotions, not the culture, but the Scripture. If we're going to have disagreements, it better be based off of Scripture, and it better be done cordially with one another, with the understanding that once we get out of the setting of our disagreement, there is a lost and dying world out there that needs the gospel that we both share. Praise the Lord. And you can't compromise on gospel issues. But you can compromise on a lot of other... Well, compromise isn't the right word. You can agree to disagree uh, on other issues. Okay. Now that goes, though, right into verse 42. 
Because he says here, whoever causes one of these little ones. And I don't think that means children. Even though we were just talking about kids. I think Jesus is using the moment to say people young in their faith or just regular folk in their faith. Just regular Christians. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. Jesus is transitioning out of this conversation about servanthood and about receiving the least among us and about let's all be together on the same page for the same reason. And he transitions in to say, anybody who comes in to the church and causes one of these little ones here who believe in me to sin, who lead them astray with false teaching, telling them it's okay to do certain things and okay to to believe certain ways that are contrary to Scripture, it would be better for that person if a great millstone were hung around his neck. Anybody know what a millstone is? When they gouged out Samson's eyes, he had to push a millstone. It was a gigantic circular piece of stone that you put grain down on the bottom and it, as you pushed it, and usually you use donkeys or horses or oxen uh, to, to make this thing go, it would be maybe as big as the stage, maybe bigger, and it would grind out the grain and separate the wheat and the chaff. It was a, that's what it was used for, a giant millstone. Jesus saying, it would be better to have one of those. We're talking maybe, let's just say 10 tons of stone tied around your neck and toss you into the sea. And then he goes from there. So already Jesus is saying, sin is serious. Causing a little one to stumble, causing a Christian to stumble or to sin, the people who do that, and I think this is primarily directed at people like me, teachers. Lee is an elder. Rob is an elder. Ken is an elder. Daniel's an elder. It's directed at leaders. Jennifer is leading the women's Bible study. People that are in leadership type of roles. It's a, it's a cautionary tale. Do not engage in pop culture, what feels good now stuff. Because it's dangerous. So there's the warning. And then Jesus looks at them and says what I think the next seven verses are sometimes very difficult to understand. So we're going to go through this, and I'm going to do the best that I can. very first thing he says is, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. Two, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. 
It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, if you're asking, Pastor Steve, where is verse 44 and verse 46? Anybody asking that question? So verse 44 and verse 46 say exactly what verse 48 says. Verse 48 says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a quotation out of Isaiah, which we're going to look at a little bit later. But that is what we call a textual variant, and I will explain textual variants when we get to Mark chapter 16. Uh, let's just for now say that we believe that it was a scribal insertion, that verse 48 had it, and then to emphasize each of Jesus' points, that a scribe just put it there, and so the older manuscripts do not have uh, verse 44 and verse 46 but it's the exact same wording as verse 48. This is one of those things when people talk about people, uh, there's all these variations in the Bible. Well, this would be an example of a variation, but it's is it a variation? Because verse 48 is there, and it's just not verse 44 and verse 46 are the same. So that's all I'm going to say. I could get down into the weeds of that because I am interested in those things. But we'll come back to that, and if you have questions, feel free to ask me. What I want us to see, though, this morning is that Jesus is, is telling us that if your hand or your foot or your eye cause you to sin, it would be better to cut those things off and go to heaven than to keep those things and go to hell. Now, does anybody think this is literal? Well, if you did, our church would look like the Black Knight, the Monty Python sketch, well, the Monty Python movie, uh, Quest for the Holy Grail. How many of you have seen Quest for the Holy Grail? How many of you know who the Black Knight is? It's only a flesh wound. Cuts off the arms, cuts off the legs. Little guy sitting there, tell him to come back and he's going to bite his knees. Uh, that's what the church would look like if we took this literal. because. You are sinning a lot, right? You are committing sins with your brain, with your mouth. You're committing sins. You're using your feet to go walk in the sin. You're using your hands to sin. You are, we are sinning. And if we were to cut off body parts every time we sinned, we'd go to heaven a whole lot quicker. We would bleed out. We would be dead. It wouldn't work. That is not what Jesus is saying. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But these, what Jesus is doing is he's trying to make a point. He's using hyperbole. There's your vocab word for the day. He's using exaggeration to get across the seriousness that your eyeball is not worth hell. That's what he's trying... He is trying to say whatever that sinful activity is, is not worth you going to hell. Because if I cut off my left hand, I can still sin with my right. So it's not literal. We are to regard sin as so serious that regardless of whatever it cost us, we need to eradicate it from our life. This is why the church is so important 
And James tells us, confess your sins to one another. That doesn't mean every Sunday, we're not going to do this, that I'm going to invite people to come up and air all your dirty laundry and sin. But it does mean that you need to have relationships within the church that you can come up to somebody and say, I am struggling. I am yelling and screaming at my kids and my wife. I am looking at pornography. I am doing things I shouldn't be doing. I am having a relationship with a woman at work that's not my wife. There's nothing physical yet, but there could be, and I've wanted there to be, and I think she does too. You have to have people you can talk to. You have to have relationship within the church. You have to be able to do that, and you also, in church, this is a little harder, but it's part of the church. We also should love one another enough According to Galatians, if any of you sees your brother caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering, your, considering yourself also, lest you be tempted. If I see somebody acting a certain way, talking a certain way, gossiping, I should lovingly say, listen, I know you don't know or think what you're doing is a big deal, but I think that's probably gossip. We, we probably shouldn't do that. I've done it too. I'm, I'm not better than you, but let's not do that. That is what church should be. It should be a place where we can lovingly do that. Now, I know that they do this in Woven. It creates relationships where they can talk to one another and become open and vulnerable with one another. You can air your weaknesses freely but also hear and receive the loving correction that you need. Church, if you don't think that you need loving correction, you're just going to, I'm just going to do my own thing, my own way all the time. That is not, you are in trouble. We are not meant to do that. We need each other. Men, you need other men. There are some things that men need other men to talk about that are, it's really Hard to talk about. Men need each other. They can confess their sins to one another. They can break down and cry and say, I have failed. And you can be restored in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself. Galatians 5 and 6 says, lest you also be tempted. It's never a place of an excuse for sin, the confessing of sin. It is a I'm looking to my brothers and sisters in Christ for help. We don't treat church this way. We treat church like it's a place to get my needs met. Well, here is your need. Cut your hands and your eyes and your feet off if it's creating an issue in your life. Sin. That is what Jesus is getting across. You're going to be my disciple. Remember, just a few pages ago, he's talking about the cost of discipleship. It's taking up your cross and following him. And it encompasses everything. And what makes this uncomfortable? And what makes this squeamish for all of us? Is in this context about sin, what he's saying is, it would be better to enter into life 
Zoe or Zoe. Life in Greek is Zoe. It'd be better to enter into this eternal life having cut off that arm, hand, foot, gouged out that eye of sin than it would be to keep everything in your reputation totally pristine and nobody has any idea of what kind of person I am. I just wear the Christian facade on the outside and nobody knows. I'm not really a follower of Christ. That is the that is the fear in this passage. I want us to look at this a little closer. I want you to look at, uh, um, well, let me just read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, long, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is the ultimate judge. And to disregard the warnings of Scripture on sin, to set them aside and to treat God as the giant teddy bear grandpa in the sky, Santa Claus, He's the Santa in the sky, is deadly. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if you keep reading Hebrews 10, you find out that He has better hope for us that belong to Him. But I want us to feel the weight of the warning. Look at back at Mark chapter 9. Look at verse 43 with me. Look at specifically the way that hell is described here. So I want us to talk about hell as a doctrine, as a reality. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life, heaven, crippled, than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. The word unquenchable is being used because biblically the doctrine of hell is very simple. It goes on and on and on for eternity. It does not stop. There is a popular uh, middle road that has come up. in. Uh, it's been throughout church history and considered a heresy. And that is something called annihilationism. Has anybody heard of this? There is no hell. You just burn up to a cinder and you cease to exist. Um, Jesus called it unquenchable fire. But in Revelation chapter 19 and uh, verse 20, I want to read a couple passages out of Revelation um, that deal with the eternality of hell. 
The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Revelation 20, verses 10 through 14. I didn't give you all those, Daryl, but I'll read these. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's fairly clear. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades. According to death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, or hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with sulfur, with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Why am I reading these verses? In particular, you find in those verses that in the judgment of God, at the end of all things, and then eternity, the eternal state is what we call it, that there is a judgment whereby the beast and the devil are judged and the dead that are in the sea and in hell, they are all, there is a bodily resurrection of the dead, of both sinner and saint. And they stand before God in the great white throne judgment, which Christians are not at. Because the great white throne judgment is for sinners. Books are opened and it is declared to them why they are there. Adolf Hitler and everybody else, including people we love, will stand there before God and be told, this is what you've done. They already know it. There will be no justification before God of any person that I don't deserve what I am receiving. And then all the contents of hell, which are all the people that are in it currently now, are thrown into this, what is called the second death, the lake of fire, which we read is forever and ever. You see the words back in Mark chapter uh, 9, verse 45. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Why is the word thrown in there? Because it's also it's, it's used every time Jesus says, thrown into hell. Thrown into hell. Because it's judgment. We read it in Revelation. When the judgment of God is passed, there is a throwing. It is an act of judgment. This is where you go. It's horrifying. 
I wrote down in my notes where we get the Greek word here for hell. Because listen, you get on the internet and there are more than 5,000 YouTube videos you can watch about how everything I'm saying is antiquated and it's not true. And, and I want to just tell you, uh, listen to them clearly if you would like and see if what they're saying is really what the Bible is saying. Because one of the things they do is if you look up the word hell in Greek, it's Gehenna. And we get that from the Valley of Hinnom. It was an Old Testament place. And this is what the Israelites were doing under King Ahaz uh, and King Manasseh, which were two of the worst kings in the history of Israel. They were so seduced by other gods in that area, they were sacrificing their children in the Valley of Hinnom to the god Molech. God Molech actually looks like this in some of the literature, and they would bring children put in the arms of that God and kill them as sacrifice. And the people of Israel were doing it. Now, Jeremiah started prophesying against it, and then King Josiah is the one who got rid of it. And the way that he got rid of it was to say, this valley of Hinnom, we are going to turn it into the garbage dump. And that's how we're going to treat what you considered sacred with the filthy pagan worship of Molech. So they start, it's in the southern part of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom, which comes over as Gehenna, which began to be viewed by the time of Isaiah as the place of eternal torment. And the reason was it provided a great visual. The visual was this, all of the animal manure all of dead animal carcasses, all of the trash and all of the garbage for everybody in the city was dumped into this valley. And the way that you keep the trash pile down is to set it on fire. And because it's filled with manure, that is a natural... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That You guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, it keeps it burning. How horrible would that stench be? How horrible would that sight be? That hundreds of years of garbage and carcasses and awful, O-F-F, uh, all of that is in this garbage heap, Gehenna. And Jesus uses that word because the understanding in the Jewish world was that this is going to be like the place of the damned. This is going to be where eternal punishment takes place. And he uses that word, Gehenna, and he says, unquenchable fire, because the fire in that garbage heap never went out. And then verse 48 comes along and says, where their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched. The imagery is, I know it's gross, but all the carcasses that are there, that are filled with maggots and parasites. If you were to look at this thing, there would be smoke and charred ashes, and there would be semi-decomposing animal carcasses and worms. It would be absolutely disgusting. And Jesus is saying, this is, this is what hell's going to be like. Isaiah 66, 24 is what Jesus is quoting there. Um, 
And this is, uh, I'm going to read to you Isaiah 66, 24. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. That is the verse that Jesus is quoting in Isaiah or in Mark chapter 9, verse 48. I want to talk a little bit about some questions I know that come up with hell. I was listening to a sermon by R.C. Sproul, and he said that people come up to him all the time because he taught uh, theology at various seminaries uh, throughout his life. And he said people would come up to him all the time and say, do you really think that hell is full of fire? And he would say, I don't, I don't think it's actual, literal fire. And he said every single time they'd go, oh, and they would be relieved. And then he would say, no. No, I, I think the people in hell would love literal fire. Because whenever Jesus is using a metaphor, he's trying to describe something that we can't understand with something that we can. Because the reality is much deeper and much worse than what we can conceive. Something else. It tells us a little bit about the value we place on God. A lot of times throughout my life I've heard the expression that hell is merely the absence of God. I do not believe the Bible teaches that at all. But it does tell you a little bit about our, our value system. It's, oh, it's just the removal of God. Whew. No. David said, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. What is hell? I think simply put, and I want to see some, I want us to look at some verses together. I think hell is the wrath of God. Hell and wrath in the same sermon. That's where they go. Hell is the wrath of God. I want to read you a couple of verses. I want to read Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. This is an interesting perspective. There are Christians in Ukraine right now that have this perspective in real time. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, fear God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is not the way we normally think of it. That's what Jesus said. Don't be afraid of people that can kill you. Who cares? They can't touch your soul. You need to be reverent and submitted before the one who has the authority to kill both body and soul in hell. Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is Revelation. It is a future tense warning. And look at the people of the earth being terrified of the coming of the Son of God, the wrath of the Lamb. Those are two words put together that are odd. The wrath of the Lamb of God. It has come. Who can stand? Romans 1.18. Those are verses just describing God and wrath in regard to judgment, but here is where we get theologically to the point. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Gosh, I will cannot wait to preach on that at a lengthy period of time. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's coming from heaven. It's coming against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then later on in chapter 2, just a few sentences later, uh, Romans 2, 3 through 5, listen to this, please. Listen to what his appeal is. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I heard another sermon. It's by John Piper. He was referencing the beheadings that started happening in the early 2000s in the Iraq War. And everybody remembers that. And, and contractors and people, and they were the Taliban was beheading people on TV. And he said people were asking him, where is your supreme Christ? Where is your God that's supposedly in charge of the universe? Where is he with this level of injustice happening? And he said, this is not a hard question to answer. He is in heaven storing up almighty wrath for the day of wrath. You and I, outside of Christ, please hear that clearly, outside of Christ, the world is storing up wrath. There is no sin that will go unpunished. None. No injustice. No rape. No child molestation, no theft, no anything will go unpunished. It will receive the judgment of God, either in hell for eternity, in His wrath, or you can come to Christ who experienced the wrath of God on our behalf so that we don't get that wrath. That is the whole point of the gospel. It's the whole point. But wrath is being stored up. To pretend that this is not in the Bible is in itself sinful. To withhold this information and just simply try to tell people, God loves you so much. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. Please, please, please. And that is true. That is the not, it's not that it's not true. But to only do that and not also say, 
and he is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And while you are here, do something about your sin. Come to Christ and fall at his mercy. Fall at the foot of the cross and receive forgiveness of these sins. And the wrath is wiped away because Jesus experienced it already at the cross. That's why it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Outside of Christ, you do not want to meet God. Outside of Christ, under no circumstances do we want to meet Him. But in Christ, we are adopted as sons. In Christ, we are called fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, joint heirs with Him. In Christ, everything changes. In Christ, we are free. And we can walk boldly. When you talk this way, you start feeling the balance come back around. You start saying, wait a second, the reason I can be bold in the world is because I know that God's wrath is not pointed at me. And I have a message to the world. Be saved from the wrath that is to come. No wonder nobody wants you to talk about it. Because this really gets down to the nitty and gritty of everybody's life. And Jesus promised they'll hate you when you preach. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Why? Because you're telling them, come to the bouncy house church that has really cool services with really cool music, with really cool food and really cool fellowship and really cool this and really cool that. We're just like the world and your sin's okay. We're not talking about sin. We're not talking about hell. We're not talking about wrath. It's good. It feels good. Live your best life now. Here's some prosperity. Here's some this. And it's the most Americanized sending people to hell thing that could exist. Because there's not, these warnings are here for a reason. Our church isn't perfect. We don't have it all figured out. We've messed up all kinds of stuff. I have messed up all kinds of stuff. But when you run into these verses, what do you do with them? You pretend they're not there? Just focus on the good ones? These are the good ones. This is what gives me freedom because I know how much does God love me? Well, when I see this about wrath and God's judgment, and then I say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, starts making a totally different kind of sense. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the eternal presence of his wrath. There's nothing in the Bible that says sinners in hell will have regret. I think all indications are that sinners in hell will go on hating God for their entire life, for their entire eternity. Let me say one other thing. Because this comes up a lot. I see it online a lot. I've had the question. We've all had the question. How can these sins, Jesus, how can these sins that are temporary here on earth. If I live to be 80 years old, and yes, I was a sinner, how can that justify? How, Lord, can you justify an eternity in hell? How many of you are brave enough to say you've had this question? Anybody had this question? How can it justify eternity in hell? I want you to listen to me as carefully as you can. If I stand, step on an ant, is anybody mad? 
Well, there's some that might be. If I kill a kitten, are you a little more upset? Why? There's a value difference between an ant and a kitten. What if I murder a baby? Walk into somebody's house randomly, see a baby in a crib and shoot it. Do I deserve to go to jail? Am I going to be hated? Should I be? Is there a difference in the value between the ant and the kitten and the baby? What if you sin against an eternally holy God who is perfect in every way and always has been and always will be? You don't realize, and I don't, it is hard to even wrap our head around that we are, by nature, children of wrath. We are born in the sin and we like our sin and our sin is best defined as rebellion against God so that what we are calling insignificant sins, really all we're doing is saying, I don't value the holiness of God nor consider it a thing worth considering. God should consider me instead of the other way around. The ant, the kitten, the baby, and then I don't have a hand high enough to go to where God is. He is infinitely valuable, infinitely holy, and we sin against Him in rebellion all the time. Why is hell eternal? Because the affront, the injustice that we commit towards God, even in what we consider little sins, is eternally horrendous in the face of a holy God. In order for justice to be, to be had for sin against a holy God, there is an eternity of punishment for it. I hope that helps somebody at least wrap your head around it a little bit. The value, we do it in our legal system. I may go to jail for killing a kitten. I may have to pay a fine. But if I kill a baby, I'm going there for, for the rest of my life. If I sin against God and do not receive forgiveness from that sin through the blood of Jesus, my punishment is eternal. I want to read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It is our job to tell the world what He has done. When you look at the cross, Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush Him on my behalf, on your behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, became sin, became all of our affront to God's holiness, all of our breaking the law, transgression of the law, 
Jesus became that on the cross and received the wrath of God so that you might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Your salvation is way better than you think it is. Your redemption is way sweeter than you know it is. Knowing His wrath and judgment opens a whole new world of what His love and mercy and grace really are. Knowing that God is holy, I fear Him. And yet knowing that He redeemed me and I came to seek and save the lost tells me God is worthy of all worship and praise and all expression of joy because He came and got me out of my condition to rescue me from the wrath that is to come. And it is our job to tell the world that this is the message of the gospel. It is the message of hope that is in Christ, and it's nowhere else. Really important. The next verse says, For everyone will be salted with fire. He just said all this hard stuff, and then he says everybody's going to be salted with fire. This is a weird and difficult saying. What does it mean? Leviticus 2.13 says, With all your offerings, you shall offer them with salt. When they gave offerings to the Lord, they gave them with salt. It probably means that we're going to be purified as his followers, as we live our life, with afflictions, tribulations, and the world hating us. First Peter 1, 6-7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're going to be His disciple. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow Him. You're going to have to cut your hands and eyeballs out if they're causing you to sin. And you're going to be salted with fire. This is why C.S. Lewis said, I would not go to Christianity if I was looking for comfort. A bottle of port would do that. However, you do come to Christianity for comfort when you find that this is the only place where the satisfaction of your soul is going to happen. Truly. True satisfaction. And that can happen in a prison cell. Or that can happen, these Christians in Ukraine that are running around and trying to help each other and serve each other, I'm telling you, if we could hear their, and we will hear their testimonies, of how they discovered a depth of who Christ is in the middle of this devastation that they're experiencing right now that they never knew before. It's always been this way for Christians. We get closer to Jesus and what God is doing in the midst of the most trying, difficult times. Is that true? Anybody experienced that? We've had in miniature and different, and some of us in major ways. Then he goes on. Salt is good. So he switches the metaphor, and now it's domestic. So think of salt shakers on your table. Salt is good, but if salt's lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
In the ancient world, salt was life. If you killed a cow and didn't use salt, you were going to only eat what you ate that day and it would be gross by the next day. You had to have salt to keep it. They didn't have refrigerators. You had to salt it to keep it alive or to keep the meat good. But around the Dead Sea, the salt was impure and it because table salt is a chemical compound, it doesn't lose its saltiness. But the salt that they were using at the Dead Sea had some other chemical compounds in it. They could cause it and they could tell it loses its saltiness. Now it's just a crystalline nothing. It does nothing. It preserves nothing. It helps nothing. Seems like what Jesus is saying here, this is, this is what I believe he's saying, is he wants us to be salty people. Not salty as in our modern euphemism of, are you, are you salty over that? That's not what he means. But the kind of people that preserve and give life. The kind of people that taste and smell like they belong to Christ. People who are salty are people who are following Christ that are radically obedient to him, that are willing to cut off arms and legs and gouge out eyes of their sin for the sake of the kingdom of God. And they put Jesus in front of everything else and they are radically obedient and they love not their life, even unto death. And everybody around you in the world that you live can tell that you're that kind of person. Lots of people taught Christianity. Not as many are living it. And when you live it, what you say has a salty quality that changes people's lives. Salt losing its saltiness, I think that it simply means that the disciples of Jesus can become lethargic, distant, and worthless. So have salt in yourself, Celebration Church. When we're all on the same page, Jesus is telling me here, that uh, have salt in yourself, be at peace with one another. We're all on the same page, all going after the same thing for the sake of the gospel. That's where we have peace with, with each other. So we're all headed toward the same goal. We're united in Christ. Let's stand up. The hope of the gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Doesn't that feel different when you talk about his wrath? And then you realize, while I was in that wrath, while I was in that ungodly state, Jesus died for me. That changes everything. The infinite nature of our sin is horrific. But the infinite nature of His mercy and love are mind-blowing. Life-altering. Let's everybody bow your head if you would. I just want to call any of you here that 
don't know him, been playing, whatever the case may be. The simplicity of God's offer is this. Repent, turn from the way you're walking. Turn to Christ and simply say, Jesus, forgive me. I believe in you. I'm going to trust in you. Help me. The Bible says, call on the name of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to just, in this moment, if you don't know Him, do that. If you're watching this, do that. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And if you do this, we would love to talk with you. Love to have you come meet us, meet me here afterwards or at some point, and just we want to talk about it and about what it means to follow Christ. Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name and we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, we are not under your wrath. You have rescued us from your wrath. Not by works which we have done, but by your own mercy, by your own grace, you saved us. God, we are humbled by your goodness. We are not presuming on your kindness. Your kindness has led us to repentance and we see you for who you are, the holy king of the universe who loved us and died for us. Lord, do your work in the hearts of the people that are here and the people that don't know you or the people watching that don't know you. Do your miraculous work. Open their eyes. Let them see the truth of your gospel. Lord, we thank you for it and we give you glory for it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Church, I love you. You are officially dismissed. Next week is an equally exciting sermon topic. It's going to be on divorce and remarriage. So that's what's next. We'll see you next week.